0: Hey, Against All Odds is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. Great odds and markets for the NBA, NHL, and college basketball. Awesome new and existing user promotions. It's America's number one sportsbook because it's easy to use, it's safe and secure, and you get your winnings fast, sometimes in as quick as two hours. It's fun to combine multiple bets from the same game into a same game parlay. Discover the most popular same game parlays each day right when you log in and if you're new just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now sign up with promo code Against All Odds so they know I sent you Welcome to the Against All Odds podcast part of the Extra Points podcast network Cousin Sal here on a Wednesday morning Jenner right, and Trifecta and I taking a break from the games and the hardwood but not totally as we have an author on very smart guy joining us now a man who has done a better job covering the Knicks than anyone with the possible exception of Michael Jordan. He's the author of blood in the garden, the flagrant history of the nineties, Knicks. sports illustrator, writer, Chris Herring. What's happening, Chris? Not much, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Congrats on the book. It's right up my alley. Although I have to be honest with blood in the garden. I thought at first second, I'm like, this could be about my old man when he tried to grow oregano in his backyard in the nineties. It wasn't, wasn't pleasant, but it wasn't, it's about the Knicks. And you were a young boy um, at the time when this team, this team was in the, uh, in the limelight, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was four when, when the Knicks hired Pat Riley. So I wasn't, I wasn't really of age to have known much of this stuff, any of this stuff. I grew up in Chicago, so I've gotten the question a lot. Are you, are you a Bulls fan? Were you a Bulls fan? I, I guess I was, you know, closer uh-huh. to maybe 10 years old, but like I said, I was four when Pat Riley got hired. So by that point, the Nixon bulls, I don't think they played in the playoffs since I was like of an age to have really watched or understood anything. So I didn't go in with the preconceived, Oh, I'm a big Knicks fan or I hated the Knicks. I, you know, I really didn't know what I was looking at. And I just kind of thought every city got championships (laughs) because I grew up in Chicago and we had, you know, parades in June every year. I just kind of figured it was a standard thing that everybody got. That's um, it was like
0: St. Patrick's Day parade. But yeah, it was focus exactly. on the basketball team in June. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I feel like this was like the worst thing about that Knicks team is that they were assembled during the Michael Jordan years, right? Like, have you thought about what they would have done had they not had to go up? I mean, they did have the one year where they didn't have to go up when he sat out, right? Uh, did okay then. But what, what do you think their numbers would have been like had they been plucked plucked in a different era, even three years on either side of Jordan?
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think it, it's interesting because some people have said and just come right out and asked. they said, do you think you could have done this book if the Knicks won a championship? And mm-hmm. um, yes, but I think the likelihood is that somebody would have written a book about them already had that been the case, especially, you know, 25, 30 years after the fact. So I think it would have been a sexier subject back then to where it wouldn't have been available to somebody like me and the lane wouldn't have been open to do that. But the best way to, to answer your question directly, think about it this way. Michael Jordan retired in 93 and set out that 93, 94 season. Right. And then he then retired again in 98. So 98, 99, you know, right on the back end of that lockout. Um, the Knicks made the finals each of those two years, which I think says a lot that as soon yeah. as Michael Jordan left the league, the Knicks were that team that was next in line, not to mention that they, they came pretty close to beating him in 93. They took the bulls to seven in 92. Um, So I think it, you know, for some people that, you know, have the question of how good were the Knicks actually, they were, they were pretty good. I mean, they, they had more wins than the bulls did. in one of those years when Jordan played the Mm -hmm. Charles Smith game is one that people still talk about. And that was a series that the the Knicks had a, a two, nothing lead in, um, and really, probably should have put their foot on the on the Bulls' throat. Quite frankly, that was also the the series where Michael Jordan the gambling accusations kind of came out for the first time, and could have thrown him off his game. Uh, so they were they were pretty toe to toe with Michael. Obviously, Michael is I would not even call him an equalizer. I mean, I think he really put them over the top for a series that was otherwise pretty even. Um, but I think that they probably win at least one title if mm-hmm. Michael's not there. They went to two without him in the picture. Had he not been in the picture at all, I think they probably win one, if not two titles. I, you know, I do think it's fair to say that the Western conference, you can't just assume whoever comes out of the East wins. Uh, for instance, if they do beat the Bulls in that 93 season with the Charles Smith play, they would have had to play the Suns. And the Suns right. had more wins than the Knicks did that season coming out of the West. The Bulls did not have necessarily an easy time uh taking out the Suns. They did win in six, but that was, you know, on a game winning shot and and different things with John Paxson. So I, I don't think it's a given. You know, they also didn't win in 94 with Hakeem. They didn't win in 99 with the Spurs, although Ewing was injured for that series. So mm-hmm. I think they probably win one, maybe two. But I mean, okay. that's nothing to sneeze at. You know, the no. idea that you could have won a title if not for this guy. But uh quite frankly, that's kind of the way the league has always operated, where there's kind of one team or two teams that kind of overshadow everybody else for a period like that
0: yeah one or two titles would have been great, and they may not have thrown a parade for Chicago. You may not have been a little boy watching a parade <laughs> that that June for the right. oh, maybe they would have maybe it was a foregone conclusion at that point. um, it's called uh is there a flagrant play on or off the court that you think about mostly when you when you came up with the title, or is that just a a fun basketball term that you wanted to throw in there?
1: yeah, I, I, I mean, there were a couple things. there was a a quote that I got from Horace Grant where uh I use it right towards the front end of the book where he says, whenever I went into the garden to play the Knicks, um, I didn't necessarily know if we were going to win, but I always knew we were going to bleed, which I really Uh love that quote. There was a sequence in um, the series that the Bulls played against the Knicks in 92, that first year Pat Riley was there where um, in one single quarter, in the third quarter of a game, um, this was right after Magic Johnson had been diagnosed with HIV So the league was hyper vigilant about the idea of having players leave the game to get at least bandaged up or kind of sealed up. You know, now they've got the basically the glue that you can just kind of glue people's skin back together to stop Uh them from bleeding. Um, But they they essentially had one quarter where the Knicks sent Jordan, Pippen, and John Paxson to the sideline all in the same quarter because they had to be bandaged and stitched up. Wow. Um, because they were all bleeding all within the same five minute span of each other. So there was that incident. And, um, just generally speaking, I mean, there, there were so many instances of Charles Oakley knocking a tooth out, you know, from Charles Smith and Charles Oakley having more flagrant fouls by himself than 15 teams in the league one season. Uh-huh. It, it was just a flagrant, flagrant bunch. And, um, you know, I was pretty proud of that when I came. I don't think I'm the most clever person, but I like when it. I came up with that subtitle, "The Flagrant History of the 1990s Knicks," I thought it just kind of fit because they definitely had some off the court stuff too. That was, um, it was interesting and maybe a little bit salacious, but I thought it fit them. I didn't feel like it was a big stretch to say that. Um, yeah. and I do think that you know their legacy on some levels that they were so physical that the league was seeking to outlaw
0: what they did. So I thought it just kind of fit here. Yeah. Who would you say was the baddest of the badasses? Is it, I mean, it has to be between Oakley and Mason, right? I, I, <laughs> Ewing is an imposing figure for sure, but I I feel like he doesn't yeah. uh, t- trade fisticuffs like uh, Oakley or, or or Mason would.
1: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, Ewing was, the, he was kind of, I won't even say necessarily clean cut, but I, I think he was just kind of a guy that he came into the, NBA with a nasty reputation defensively um, and then kind of became more known for his offensive skills once he got to the NBA. Um, he was not a guy that was really going at people that much. Every now and then he might get under somebody's skin. If You look around and you know, look for a Google image. Him and Michael, they're kind of staring at each other, going toe to toe. But he was not someone after his first couple of years that really got into to scuffles at all. It was more Oakley and and Mason for sure. Starks was mm-hmm. A really fiery guy too. I don't think he was as imposing because he was only six two or six three, right. despite being listed six five. But um Oakley was more likely to just kind of smack you out of nowhere, punch you if you you owed him money. You know, that's he's <laughs> he's on record. Having said that, he has his own book that came out two weeks after mine where he said, you know, I want it on record right now that I did not punch Charles Barkley. And then you know, two, three lines later, he's like, but I did smack the crap out of him. Um, so that was kind of how Oakley rolled. I would say that Mason was a guy that um, he had a shorter fuse when it came to the idea of if he felt disrespected or threatened in some way, whether it be on the court, whether it be in a bar, whether you were a man or a woman, that he might hit you for it. Um, you know, I've got a detail in the book where he sucker punches someone in a bar fight. Um, mm-hmm. I guess he can't even really call it a fight because he sucker punched the guy, but Um, Hubert Davis, now the North Carolina coach was standing there with them. When it happened, Hubert Davis was a rookie when that happened. And he had basically asked Hubert to go kind of, uh, bar hopping with him. Hubert Davis is like, do I have to, but he's a rookie. So he can't really tell the guy, no. Mm -hmm. And he brings him along and then Mason sucker punches the guy and Hubert Davis is just standing there slack jawed. And um, <laughs> Anthony Mason tells him run and run, you know, basically <laughs> because he knows he might get in trouble for it because he was the one that, that basically caused the fight and the sucker punch and everything. So Mason was a guy that um, he was, I think he was even rougher than Oakley, but kind of in ways that weren't kosher. There was that, there was a, a game of 11 up, up to 11 days playing by ones with the son on his uh, junior high son, uh, who had just graduated from junior high that day, his son is a solid eight inches shorter, nine inches shorter, 80, 90 pounds lighter than him. But, um, you know, his son is on the verge of tying the game up with the layup. Mason doesn't want that to be the case. So Mason clotheslines the son out of the air <laughs> in front of the whole family that's there for graduation. And I just kind of feel like it tells you that, uh, Mason was not going to let anybody win at his expense. Someone that's calling right. him out at a bar saying that the Knicks suck at a bar it's not really hurting anybody, but to Mason, that's a slight, and he can't let that ride his son. um, You know, he, he ended up knocking a kid out cold by, you know, kind of inadvertently at a summer camp that the Knicks were holding, that they had Mason kind of come and guest star at Uh, the kid Mm -hmm. broke his nose, was out cold. Mason um, didn't mean to hurt him, but elbowed him in the nose because he just, he always was going so hard um, and didn't really know how to turn the, the competitiveness on or off.
0: Wow. Well, all right. So I think the answer is Anthony Mason. I think it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but going back to Oakley, it's interesting. You said, I'm going to hit somebody if they owe me money, whatever the, I'm, I'm, I'm poorly phrasing it, but these guys gamble. This is what interests me. They, and you, you touch on this in the book, they gamble to Michael Jordan light. Like it made me think like, wow, how great this team would have been if they had Michael Jordan. Well, they may not have shown up to any games also is the other thing they have the intensity. <laughs> What what are some of your favorite gambling stories regarding these guys or things that they've told you?
1: Well, the, you know, a couple of them told me that Riley at one point tried to shut it down um, mm-hmm. and just have them stop, which, you know, sounds wonderful. It sounds like a, a well-intentioned yeah. thing. Riley didn't really care about that, but he was very much someone that was worried about the on-court chemistry. And he was also someone that was very big on, on messaging, uh, sometimes in a maniacal sort of way where he would have them watch a video of Rams headbutting each other and car crashes before a game when he wanted them to play violently on defense. Uh, mm. So he could go a little bit far with it sometimes, but sometimes if they were in the middle of a rut or a, a you know, three, four game losing streak, he would try to find some way to just kind of change the message. And um, at one point in his first season with them, uh, they were going out West. They had a game in golden state. And so they were at a hotel in Oakland and Riley sat the players down and he had four sets of chairs kind of laid out in a ballroom at the hotel. And he put the most veteran highest paid guys in one, one part of the room, you know, Oakley, Ewing, um, Gerald Wilkins. He put some of his younger guards, Greg, Anthony, John Starks at another table. He put Anthony Mason and some of the the youngest guys on the team that had just barely made their way onto the team at one table. And he put all the white guys at another table, Kiki Vandaway, uh-huh. Tim McCormick. And he basically said, the way I see you guys right now, you guys are a click. You guys are all clicks. And I need you to perform more like a team because I don't need you guys to love each other and be best buddies all the time, but you have to respect each other. You can't dislike each other, not want to interact with each other so much to where you're not sharing the ball with each other. It's affecting the way you you are as teammates. And one of the things that he called out in that meeting was that he knew that there were kind of escalating bets that were happening even just, you know, practice and, and the idea of free throw shooting contests, half court shooting contest. But one of the wagers at one point had gotten up to 30 or $40,000 back in 1991, uh, which was, you know, I guess pretty big money when you consider what sure. the contracts were at the time and Greg Anthony and Mark Jackson specifically had done that. And it started to kind of create this tension about whether Mark Jackson was playing favorites with who he was passing the ball to as the point card. And so Riley said, you kidding me? Like 30, $40,000 over a shooting contest. Like that's tuition for a kid. Like how do you expect someone to pass you the ball when you've got that kind of money that you owe somebody, you know, if somebody's right. upset with you. So he did go there and, and told them to stop gambling. It didn't happen. Uh, but the, the bigger thing later on that I got to in the book, uh, Greg Anthony said that they would regularly have $50,000 card games on the plane. You know, again, this is the mid nineties while he was on the mm-hmm. team early nineties. But the the one that I thought was funniest that I, I made a bigger deal of in the book was, again, our friend Charles Oakley, who played with Michael Jordan uh, with the Bulls before he went to the Knicks. Um, so some guys were telling me they really didn't want to play with Oakley because they knew he had the experience with Michael. And everybody kind of knew that everybody wanted to be so in with Michael Jordan at the time that they would help him cheat with card games. So they were like, I don't want anything to do with Oakley because if he's learned any lessons from Michael... He's going to just kind of beat everybody, but it won't be in the most uh, above board sort of way. Right. But Oakley in particular on flights and stuff like that, always wanted cards to be the, the team bonding activity. And some people just don't like cards. Some people like to read, some people like to sleep, some people like to talk, whatever, but they're not really looking to, to play cards or they they want to shut off the competitiveness for maybe an hour, two hours. Oakley was not like that. Oakley always wanted to play. <laughs> he felt like it was a, a slight when people wouldn't play, and keep in mind he was one of the highest-paid guys on the roster. So he would always want other guys to play, but a lot of people would only gamble with their per diem money—the money that they would get from the team to buy lunch, dinner on the mm-hmm. road, in cash—and they were only willing to put that up because if they lose their cash for the day, that's not a big deal. But they don't want to go under because uh, right. these guys are not getting paid the way Oakley's getting paid as a as a big veteran player. So finally, Oakley got tired of hearing that excuse. And what he ended up doing when people would say, I don't have the cash to play. He went out and got one of those old school credit card imprint machines uh, that you could scan people's cards. And he started awesome. using one of those and basically saying, now you don't have an excuse anymore because now we can just scan your credit card and I can get your money that way. <laughs> but if you use that, I'm going to take 10% off you. So it's either you pay with cash or I'll take your money that way. And then you got to pay me a, a big basically. So wow, uh, Oakley was one of a kind in that sense.
0: Yeah, he was like the early Venmo at the time. That's unbelievable. And and just the, the, what you're talking about, like the favoritism on the court. So if if like Kiki Vandeweghe's scoring average went up like four points in a, a matter of two weeks, you would make, oh boy, someone owes Mark Jackson money. Someone else. Like this is like, you could really figure it out. Who do you think on the team, if you had to point to one player that would pull a Calvin Ridley, if you heard that they actually bet on the Knicks and you would heard it was one player, who, are you pointing to Oakley or... Well,
1: he won't like this. Me and him are are friendly enough, but it's not a knock on him. And and, and this is saying him and these days. So maybe not now, but I'd say maybe, uh, I'd say maybe Greg Anthony. Um, Greg was a guy that was from Nevada anyway,
0: Uh,
1: went to UNLV, which obviously had its its share of notoriety during those years. He was Mm -hmm. a guy that, as I mentioned before, he was pretty open about the fact that the team enjoyed gambling and he himself. Uh, you know, I, had heard in my reporting that he had been involved in some of the, the shooting games and stuff like that. He was a little bit, I won't say notorious, but he, he certainly had interests outside of that or things that kind of were notorious enough on their own from the standpoint of he left a loaded gun in the weight room at one point. Um, so he was clean cut from the standpoint of he, when he went in for his, uh, interviews with the Knicks, uh, for pre-draft stuff, he said he wanted to run for president. He'd been like the young Republicans president or Senate president or whatever it was a UNLV. Um, but he he definitely had some stuff that he was still figuring out. He sucker punched Kevin Johnson in that massive fight with the Suns. Uh, yeah. I could kind of see it with, with Greg Anthony where like if, if he did something, he would have been like a low level enough guy at the time to have been involved with something like that. Uh-huh. I, I don't think he actually would have done it, but he did some stuff that was kind of head scratching back then. and And maybe he would have made a bad decision. Maybe he would have had enough. Connections with people in Vegas to where he would have been the guy that you target to do something like that. I could definitely say it. it. It all adds <laughs> up.
0: Uh, every single bit of it. All right, Chris, let's take a break. Now, here's the thing: you can't bet on the '90s Knicks. That would be fun, but you can bet on the 2022 Knicks. FanDuel Sportsbook is an official sports betting partner of the NBA, and with FanDuel, same game parlays, you can turn little bets into big paydays. So, let's go Knicks plus 14 and a half adjusted line against Dallas over 20. 20- Over 223 and a half. Let's do that. And Julius Randle over 20 and a half. How about that? That's a nice payout. Speaking of payouts, payouts in as little as two hours. Easy to use, safe and secure. Plus, if you're a new customer, you get a risk-free bet up to $1,000. Make every game feel like the finals all season long. Download the Fandle Sportsbook app or head to Fandle.com and sign up using promo code against all odds to bet the NBA today and get your first bet risk-free. Um, I do want to ask you about uh, someone who did not pay to play, get paid to play on the team. In fact, he goes out of his way to talk about how he still pays himself for tickets for courtside tickets. Spike Lee, um, every bit is associated with that Knicks team, as a lot of the players <laughs> you just mentioned. I wonder. Did everybody on the Knicks like him? Because I know like fans were torn because I, I I, (laughs) fans are idiots for sure. I include myself in that bunch, but when Reggie Miller made all those shots in a matter of eight seconds and was pointing at Spike Lee, all the fans blame Spike Lee. That wasn't going to happen unless Spike Lee was there, which is nonsensical. But I wonder if any of the players are like, Hey man, cut it out. We don't need you. here. You're you're working against us. There,
1: there were some people, um, I don't think there's anybody that dislikes him as far as the players are concerned. Um, There were certainly some that were frustrated with like sit your ass down sort of thing that particular day with the Reggie Miller stuff, because they, again, these are extremely competitive guys. I think most NBA players are wired that way. Certainly the Knicks Reggie Miller is a hall of famer that, I mean, I have his book sitting on my shelf. It's called, I love being the enemy. The first line of his book is I hate the New York Knicks. That's literally line number one of a 300 page book. So you don't need extra motivation um, from somebody like Spike Lee, who's kind of an an, an extra or, you know, for, for his phrasing, you know, as far as films and stuff, you don't need someone that's kind of a peripheral character to rile somebody up even more. So not a big name, but Corey Gaines, for instance, was on those Knicks teams. He was a backup. he was Mm -hmm. basically a third string point guard that they signed on after they lost Doc Rivers to a torn ACL that year he was Reggie's teammate at UCLA, his roommate actually at UCLA. And after Reggie made maybe two or three threes in that game that you're talking about, where he had the 25 point fourth quarter, he looked at Jeff Van Gundy, who was sitting next to on the bench. And and Corey Gaines always made a point of sitting next to Van Gundy because Corey wanted to go into coaching himself as an assistant. And he said, Jeff, I'm just telling you, we got to find somebody to shut. Like if we have to send like a team staffer over there to tell spike to shut up. I've watched this movie before I've watched Reggie Miller go off when he's kind of provoked and amped up by somebody from the other side, whether it's one guy, whether it's a whole crowd of people, he had said he'd watched him do the same thing in an away game at Washington state. um, during college, he's like, I'm just telling you, you got to find somebody to shut the guy up. Mm -hmm. And, um, obviously they didn't do that. Obviously spike kind of played with fire and obviously Reggie, you know, had the 25 point fourth quarter, which it didn't burn them then, but then the next year they had, you know, another moment where Reggie kind of caught lightning in a bottle, the eight points and nine seconds at the yeah. end of game one and 95, and they lost that series in seven. So every game mattered. And, uh, they, they were just barely good enough to kind of overcome it in 94 when they made the finals, but they were not good enough or not tethered together enough, uh, closely enough in 95. And obviously Riley left right after that. And, uh, you know, I think they had some remnants of the same feel, for the Van Gundy years. But right after that, I mean, that was, that was all she wrote. And it's very easy to look now at how things have panned out for the Miami heat who are in first place and have won three titles since, um, yeah. and very different for the
0: Knicks, obviously over that time. Oh, yeah, Oh, I mean, you talk about that, that Pacer, the Pacers Knicks was, was the rival. I, I liked it better than any of the others, even Pacers Bulls, and uh sorry, Knicks Bulls, or uh Knicks heat as uh, we're about to talk about. But, um, yeah, that, that every game was just a battle. But uh, moving on to Van Gundy, uh, how about that moment in 98 when he grabs Alonzo Mourning's <laughs> leg? Do you feel like he should have gotten a banner uh, in MSG put right there in the <laughs> rafters Grabbed Alonzo's after that? leg. Yeah, yeah what just else put that in the
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's funny. That was probably one of the funniest things when I was reporting the book out where you asked Jeff about it. And he's like, you know, Chris, I, I want to answer you honestly as to why I did it. But that's one of those moments. Sometimes you get people that criminals basically that will say that they don't know what they were doing or they don't know why they did something when they're actually uh-huh. sat down and questioned in a room. And he was like, you know, I, I, I think I understand temporary, the, the kind of amnesia that people talk about because he's like, I could not tell you what the hell I thought I was doing. <laughs> um, but I will say this in, in all seriousness, um, as we talk about the differences between the heat And the Knicks um, over the, you know, the next 20, 25 years after the Riley shift happened and change happened. Um, So you you fast forward to 97 and as you know, as any Knicks fans know, there was basically a series that the Knicks were up three, one, they're about to be down three, two and PJ Brown flips Charlie Ward over a Knicks point guard, a nine inch height differential, a hundred pound differential between the two players. PJ Brown flips Charlie Ward over. It happens on the Knicks' side of the court. And so all the Knicks come pouring off the bench, um, which was technically illegal. The league had all sorts of rules, probably because of the Knicks involved, meaning that you couldn't come away from the bench. You couldn't leave the bench to participate in an altercation, to break up an altercation for anything. So um, because of that, the Knicks lost five guys who were all suspended for the last two games of the series including Patrick Ewing, who had no intent to fight or break up anything. He basically wandered five, six feet off the bench and the league held his feet to the fire and basically, you know, letter of the law sort of thing that the Knicks are still angry about. Fans are still angry about. It Cost the Knicks that series. That was huge. And it was huge. I mean, you know, the Knicks felt like they had a legitimate chance to maybe go toe to toe with the Bulls that year. They'd been very competitive against them that year, even with Michael Jordan back in the league. But I, I say all that to say this. Jeff Van Gundy during that off season really met Jim Dolan and really spoke with him for the first real time um, after he'd come in to basically play as the team owner, you know, the, the chairman of the, of the company that owned uh, the Knicks mm-hmm. and, you know, most people use first introductions as kind of pleasantries and, you know, hi, nice to meet you. Let's keep in touch. You know, I'll be rooting for you, whatever. Meanwhile, Jim Dolan in his first lunch with Jeff Van Gundy and his coaches, his assistant coaches says, by the way, if anything ever happens like that heat fight ever again, I'm holding you personally accountable, Jeff. Huh. It was like the first thing out of his mouth to Jeff Van Gundy. So Jeff is like, Oh, okay. Um, you know, he owned it. He was like, you know, we could have handled that better. You're right. Yeah. But at the same time, he's was like, what the hell? So he's looking at it from the standpoint of if we get a bunch of our guys suspended again in a fight. I could lose my job. That's the way he's looking at it. So he comes pouring off the bench. He really doesn't want any of his guys suspended. That could have been the way he was looking at it or thinking about it. He does claim the temporary insanity, but I also think to some extent he might almost be covering for Jim Dolan a little bit there, just as far as Ugh. he knew his job might be on the line yeah. from the standpoint of if, if this breaks out and our whole bench comes off the floor onto the floor that we could be in real trouble. Um, so it might've been temporary insanity, but it also might've been job preservation from his standpoint. Uh,
0: it's, uh, it's amazing, but uh, you know what, Chris, let's take a quick break. Let's take a deep breath and talk a little more about the Dolan's as we, uh, discuss this book. This is, this is terrific. We'll be right back. All right. We're back with, uh, Chris Herring, you brought up the Dolan's James Dolan and, you know, I don't even know where to start with this because as a Knicks fan, like everybody wants to blame this guy and it's easy enough to say they haven't had a superstar come play for them because of Jim. First of all, do you agree with that? Is that is, is that essentially the problem here? Why we can't get... I mean, even like, like LeBron James would have taken the Nets over the, the Knicks when he made the uh, decision as no one pulls up in a wheelchair. It just all looked very off to him in addition to everything else that goes on behind the scenes. What do you think? Do you think that's... That's a hurdle that can't be, uh, we can't get over. Well,
1: it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I actually really appreciate your kind of the way you're framing it because I, I think, look, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say I think Jim Dolan's a good owner. I think he spends, which you would want your owner to spend if you're a fan. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other things that go into that with, with not really encroaching and letting people do their jobs, hiring the right people into those jobs and management. But it's interesting because whenever the Knicks are good, it's like you don't hear a thing from fans about their issues with Dolan. Whenever they're bad, I think he gets the majority of the blame. And it's right. like, okay, but if the team has been good for a year, two years, something went right during that time. And I'm not someone that believes in never giving any credit to someone or mm-hmm. giving someone all the blame You know, at the same time. So I do think that the superstar part of it is the biggest part. The reason the Knicks were good in the 90s I think they were doing a lot of things right from a management standpoint. I think they were doing a lot of things right. You know, Certainly the right sorts of coaches they had, guys that were very smart, that believe it or not, were very ahead of their time as far as the way they used analytics and strategy and and film and all sorts of stuff. But a massive part of it, and I would say the lion's share of it, was that Patrick Ewing for most of the time in the 90s was legitimately like a top five, top six guy. Mm -hmm. And they haven't had anything close to that. I mean, the closest you could say really is maybe Carmelo for a year or two during this most recent era, but right. he was not a, a super well-rounded player. And I think you could only say that about him for about two years. He was a great scorer, but didn't really make people around him all that much better. Um, and was not much of a defender for a lot of the time he was there. And when you don't have someone that kind of can keep you afloat, like LeBron could do with Dan Gilbert, or quite frankly, you know, when we talk about ownership, Robert Sarver owns the Suns. He's literally being investigated right now for all sorts Mm -hmm. of sex harassment, like racial discrimination stuff or the way he speaks and using the N word and stuff. Like he, he's overseeing that team right now. And that team made the finals last year. It was a team that had a horrible track record. Guess what? They added Chris Paul. Guess what? Devin Booker got a little bit older and they have seemingly a great coach at Monty Williams. So I think you can overcome having a really horrible owner You just have to have a really, really great set of players or a really great player who insulates you from that. And the Knicks have not had that. So the way you formulated the question, I think, was really smart, because if you think Dolan is the reason they haven't gotten a superstar, that's one thing. But I think the absence of the superstar, whether it's because of Dolan or not, is the reason that they've been so terrible for the last 20 years, because pretty much from the moment Patrick Ewing walked out, they have not been a consistent winner. And that's really what separated them from the teams that have been consistent winners.
0: Well, and here's what's extra distressing, I think. I mean, of course, New York should have a great basketball team and not the Nets, the Knicks. But of course, that should happen. Of course, someone should want to play there but it was easier to swallow when LeBron was the star of the league and there was only a couple other stars. Now everybody's got a star, right? I mean, like, I think it changes every three months. The question as to if you had to start a team right now, who would you go with right now? everyone, <laughs> right. people now, now the flavor of the day is John ja Morant, and he's terrific, right? Uh, Trey young a year ago, uh, right about now. Um, before that it was probably Zion Williamson without even having seen him play a step foot on a hardwood, an NBA hardwood. So when everybody's got a star, now it really is. And like, Joe, it's like, all right, Julius Randall could, we could get lucky with him. He didn't <laughs> right. need to be a star, but doesn't that, isn't that like, all right. I think even more blame now, like find your star. I know you have to draft, you have to get lucky and draft in the top three or four or five or, or get lucky with a second tier player who really stepped up his game. But to me, that's what, that's the big bummer here that everybody now has a superstar.
1: No, you're, you're, you're spot on. And, um, you know, if we want to talk about the problems with the, the Knicks, it's that that they haven't been able to convince a, a, a key top flight guy to sign in New York, which before it was either market size or just money, you know, and, mm-hmm. and marketing and everything else. Now we've seen guys in Milwaukee, like you mentioned, job Memphis, Dallas, uh, you know, if if Zion decides he wants to stay in new Orleans, new Orleans, You could be a star in any market now. It really doesn't fundamentally Mm -hmm. matter. Denver, um, although I think that, you know, he's a guy that still flies under the radar a little bit for how great he is, but you could be a star anywhere and it doesn't have to be New York. I think the first real sign of that was um, some years back. I want to say it was like 2014 or 2015. The Knicks really wanted Greg Monroe. Um, I think they offered him a max contract and he decided not to take it. And I'm trying to remember where he went. Did
0: you go to Detroit?
1: It was somewhere like that. And people were like, whoa, right. like he didn't go to New York, like, mm-hmm. but they offered him the same thing. But like you have guys right. that are just deciding to play for better teams now or teams mm-hmm. that they see more potential in, which has not been a <laughs> strength of the Knicks for several years now, really dating back to the time that we were starting to talk about at the beginning of the podcast. So um, you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there's no, guys that are willing to sign, at least not yet. Um, Again, the closest thing we had to that was Carmelo forcing a trade there or Amari Stoudemire Uh deciding that he wanted to sign, but his knees were shot. Um, And then the the flip side of that is that if you can't sign a star, you've got to draft one. And Uh the Knicks have only had, I think at this point in the last however many years, going back to like the time I was born, which was 86, I think to this day, they've only had two picks that were in the top five that they kept that they didn't trade away. And I think it was Porzingis and I think it was Barrett. Um, so that's a big part of it. And then even when they do draft, well, like Porzingis hands down was a good draft Mm -hmm. pick. Um, you know, even if I think they lucked into him, I think they probably would have taken, um, they probably would have taken Jaleel Okafor if they could have, they probably wanted Carl Towns. They got number one in that draft, but anyway, um, They are a team that even when they've drafted well and done well with the pick that they take that pick and they trade it for a guy like Carmelo, you know, after he develops a little bit, or they just decide that, you know, Porzingis falls out of love with the team and then they trade him to Dallas to try to get something back for him. And so they haven't had a draft pick a first round draft pick that they've kept or brought back on a multi-year deal going all the way back to at this point, Charlie Ward, who they re-signed in 1999. And uh, you don't have any teams in the league like that. Like, I don't think there's a single team that has that sort of draft record. It speaks to a lack of consistency, which when you talk about the timeline of that, that goes back to when Jim Dolan came into power with this team. So you really do have some 20, 25-year-old problems at this point that, um, you know, winning organizations have more stability and consistency than that. But it's very hard to find a star when you don't have a consistent, stable, healthy environment.
0: So what do you do? I'm gonna put you on the spot. You see, uh, Jim in the elevator. He's, he's he's warming up. He's about to do a JD in the straight shot set there, and you you get him to put his base down, whatever the hell he put. I don't even know what he plays. Uh, and you like you you could whisper one thing to him in an elevator. What what is it? Doesn't have to be an elevator. Wherever you are. Sure, I'm not gonna whisper it. I'll just
1: tell him. I mean, they, they need a point guard in the worst way. Think about yeah. how quickly the bottom of the season fell out for them when Derek Rose, like a guy that number one, I, and he, I'm from Chicago. I'm a guy that watched him up close, mm-hmm. terrific player, certainly in his prime, I mean, an MVP level player who did win at the youngest MVP of all time. But we're talking about someone that we've known to have a history of knee problems and everything else really with him um, who even with the Knicks has had injury issues because, you know, his body has broken down. He'd, he'd been healthy for a solid year now for the most part. But you could never rely on him that fully. And they went out and got Kimball Walker, which I think, you know, even me, I thought maybe was a smart enough signing. It certainly seemed like a good value signing. They didn't break the bank to get him or anything like that. Yeah. But they hinged a lot of what they were doing on him. And then within a few weeks, month and a half at most, you saw we can't really play the guy every night. He's not good enough defensively. He's too small. Um, and, you know, his tank empties a lot faster. Now he's a little bit older and there's wear and tear on the guy. So you pull him from the rotation and all of a sudden it puts a lot of pressure on Rose, Um, Mm -hmm. or if not him on Emmanuel quickly on Alec Burks, who's not a a traditional point guard and then Rose gets hurt. And then the whole thing just falls apart um, because you don't have a a veteran point guard to run the show for you. So I was kind of dumbfounded when they didn't make a trade at the deadline either to unload some guys that would have had value elsewhere or to bring somebody in that had value that it would have cost you some assets, but, you've had a chance to make the playoffs and now it seems like that's largely faded away. So, um, they need a point guard that, you know, when we talk about the the Charlie Ward thing, 99 being the last time they resigned a first round pick to a, a multi-year deal. It's also been about that since they've had like a true, true point guard that was just going to be there. Right. Thought it might've been Jeremy Lin for a minute. They had Chauncey Billups and then they amnestied him, um, to bring in Tyson Chandler, um, it's always been something and it's never been a consistent thing for them. Um, It's someone that's a little bit over the hill. It's, you know, it's Stefan Marbury who, you know, has a falling out with somebody in the organization. It's never worked, but that's probably the single most important position in the league today. And it's kind of incredible that they've tried as hard and as long as they have to win without having a stable night in, night in, night out guy that could really hold down that position for them. So they need that. It is sad.
0: You're right. Yeah, I mean, the best point guard was a, a quarterback and it was a quarter of a century ago. <laughs> it's really crazy. Um, I, I, Well, I'm not going to assume. Have you seen Jeff Perlman's Showtime, uh, the, the series based on Jeff Perlman's Showtime book, The Lakers on HBO? Yeah, I did.
1: I did. Yeah, I watched it on Sunday.
0: Now, how do we get the 90s Knicks? Because they were an even wilder and I think for my money, more intriguing bunch. How do we get them? How do we get you to talk to Netflix? <laughs> Is this going on already? <laughs> I mean, you no, told me uh, no. 11 stories that uh, could make up three episodes just in this last half. Yeah, hour.
1: yeah. well, I'll tell you this. I, I, I think there's a very good chance and we're in talks to have something happen as, as far as a docu-series is concerned. But mm-hmm. I don't think we'll see anything scripted. I mean, I think Jeff Jeff is smarter than me in some ways. He if you look at his <laughs> books, he's brilliant, by the way. He was really the guy that kind of talked me into doing the next book. Um, he's done the, you know, the, the nineties Cowboys, he's the eighties Lakers. Yep. He just did. And it actually got this optioned as well for the potential for it to be something on screen as well. The, the Shaq Kobe Phil era Lakers, he's written one on the 86 Mets that by the way, were all crazier teams than the one I focused on. Um, there are normally <laughs> so? more drugs involved. <laughs> well, well, I won't maybe not the Kobe Shaq Phil Lakers, right. but the, all the other ones had way more drugs involved than mine. Um, But also those teams, those teams won championships. And I think when you talk about like his, in particular, the, the Showtime Lakers, there were, there was a dynasty at play. You had Riley there as a coach for the whole era. Um, But also they, you know, they, they had a face of the organization like Magic Johnson was so smiley and, you Mm -hmm. know, was the face of the league at that time, along with Larry Bird. The Knicks had Ewing who was just kind of a more quiet to himself guy. And in my book, I get into all the reasons why I think he was that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But they didn't have like big electric, electrifying like personalities. Riley was the character I framed the book around in part because of that. I think he's fascinating, but I think that uh, it's a little bit harder when you are in the conversation every year, but you're not really the team that the era was built around. So I don't, I I could be surprised, you know, I've had people email me every few days saying they've got an interest in doing something with the you know, with the book, uh, and maybe someone will come along and say they really want to do something scripted. But I'd, I'd be a little bit surprised. But you know, I'm I'm open to anything. Okay. I, I always will be.
0: Well, uh, we definitely need to work on your sales pitch a little bit. I don't think I don't think you <laughs> I don't think you lead with Patrick Ewing is boring, but I think we can get there. I think we can get this <laughs> this for you. I think it's great. I mean, you could have Denzel play. Um, see, a lot of these guys are too old. You could you could have Denzel play the current Charles Oakley, right? It could start with him getting uh, <laughs> escorted out of the garden, and then you don't see him the rest of the way, right? See, there you go. I, I just imagine I Denzel
1: uh, the, the the training day scene where he. Is it you know King Kong like yeah, shit on me, you know? And he's like, you <laughs> right. know, basically getting mad at them for turning their back on him. And that was essentially what happened. I, I could see it. I, I had not considered the Oakley Denzel mashup. I don't know that anybody else would have other than you, but yeah, um, might be, it, might, the, just it might be workable.
0: <laughs> now we're gonna sell this. We're gonna do it. It's Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 90s Knicks. Chris Herring, thanks for coming on. This was terrific.
1: Thanks so much for having me. This was a blast. I appreciate it. Now- no, no, no.